Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Med Talk podcast. We have everyone but Lou here today, so listen up for the latest news on medical technologies. First up, what have you got? Yeah, so a little bit of an update into the digital health world. Late last week, a group of NHS GPs took part in a protest against the online appointment service GP at Hand. Uh, GP at Hand, if you don't know, is a digital health service for booking online appointments with your, with your doctor. It runs uh, across a few um, GP practices in London, mainly offering 24-7 video consultations. You can pick up your prescriptions and you can also do face-to-face appointments if you need to. Um, so why, why were the GPs protesting it? Well, the protesters were claiming that GP at hand is increasing workloads for NHS GPs and is threatening current funding models. How is it increasing the workload? Well, a lot of patients who are signing up to GP at hand are getting um, sort of signed off of their current GP practice and then are calling up angrily, not realising that this but actually signed up to a new service and um, so we're having to deal with a lot of sort of administration uh, issues on that side but also the claim that, that GP at hand takes money from the NHS by picking the most profitable patients and mm. um, so because it's a primarily an online video ser- uh, consultation service it only it can only cater for certain conditions so the ringleader of the protest Dr Jackie Appleby um, is saying this service takes money from the NHS. They don't want patients with complex mental health problems, drug problems, dementia, uh, learning disabilities, or safeguarding needs. And they think that's because these patients are expensive. But then. And they're difficult. Uh, they're yeah, and there's the argument that yeah. because it's an online service, we can only cater to a certain, mm. a certain demographic mm-hmm. of people with you know certain conditions. Uh, GP at hand responded by. Well, simply saying people have the right to choose their NHS uh, practice. It's sort of a, the way things are going to go as well for online services. Well, I was going to say, GP at hand is just one firm doing this. Yeah, why, exactly. why do you think they've singled this company out? Well, they're NHS accredited GP at hand, they're not. Because you, you do get a lot of private GPs going down the, um, the online route right. uh, na- nowadays. But, you know, maybe maybe there's a whole privatisation part, part to it where they don't want... Uh, it's interesting that they, so when people are signing up to this GP at hand, it's kicking them out of their GP surgery. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I think maybe, I think maybe it's just a communication error. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Jackie Appleby says uh, surgeries like my own are now getting lots of calls from angry former patients who didn't realise that by using GP at hand, mm. they were deregistering from their usual yeah, surgery. Yeah, private ones, you can call them up mm-hmm. and not be kicked out of your normal GP yeah, but those ones you would have to pay for, you know, yes. a single consultation. Yes. So that's you know, if you if you want to use your, you know, if you want to pay for yourself just for convenience yeah. sake, then fair fair enough. But I think of course this is, you know, it's part of the NHS, mm. but not realizing that you know they have to be part of this practice because it does run across five different different surgeries in London. Yeah. Um, and there are face to face appointments if you need it. So what's the solution? Well. Better communication, 
um, perhaps by GP at hand, st- stating that you know if you sign up to this, you will be choosing a new a new, a new GP practice. Yeah. Um, on the on the digital side, um, I, I, I genuinely think that you know these services can't cater to all medical no. med- medical conditions because no. there's a safety there's a safety issue there if they do, um, and it's it's going to appeal to people who are, you know, want, want convenience instead of, you know, calling up at six o'clock in the morning just get a, get an appointment. <laughs> Yeah, and it could also be a way of facilitating somebody with hypochondria, for example, mm, to yeah. get prescriptions that maybe they don't necessarily mm. need as well, which you know can be dangerous in itself. Mm-hmm. But I mean, this is the these these online GPs is it's it's still fairly early days. Mm. Um, I thought there was supposed to be more of um obviously more GP surgeries themselves offering digital services. Yeah, yeah. there's a whole there's a I think there's a bit of a fifty fifty split between that. Mm. Um, a lot of GPs want to do video consultations because they think they'll be able to work maybe more at home, you know, you know address the work-life balance. Um, that's currently sort of like plaguing them at the moment. So well, my GP offers telephone appointments mm-hmm. rather than bringing people in straight away. Yeah. It Depending on, you know, the issue that you're going to try and see the doctor yeah, about. Yeah, I mean, it's another way to alleviate pressure as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, particularly in a small practice, mm-hmm. I think, you know, if you have too many people in the waiting room, it just gets silly. Yeah, it's just going to get bad. And bad risk of, inf- you know, infections as well with various things. So th- this is where it really where the argument for better regulation of apps comes in as well. Mm. Um, I know we're not exclusively talking about an app here, we're talking about a whole service, mm-hmm. but these apps in general... Um, we know there's a huge argument for increased regulation of these things. Yeah. Um, Liz Ashel Payne, who's the founder of Orca, she's speaking at MTI Expo at the end of the month. Um, she'll be talking about exactly this topic. So, where these GP consultancy apps and other health apps as well um, are currently not really subject to the same regulations and medical devices are. Yeah. That's um, where these these kind of arguments come up. Yeah, and, and she. Um, is a really a really good speaker. I've seen her speak in Manchester about Orca, mm. um, which is good gu- guideline for people. If, you know, for, for all the apps out there. Yeah. Um, but CQC, uh, Care and Quality Commission, were given um, access to regulated apps. I think early in January. Right. Um, by the Department of Health, um, or at least they're going to be able to uh, reg- regulate. Mm. Um. And this GP at hand is sort of related to another news story that came out about the CQC, um, which revealed that almost half of GP online services were uh, unsafe. Um, and that's coming from inspections into 55 online primary care services in the UK. And so, you know, services that were that provide prescriptions and consultations yeah, I was through say, websites what do they and apps. unsafe, that they, people were getting prescriptions and they didn't need them, or...? Yeah, there's there's a few thing there's a few things here. Um, some of the particular issues were sort of inappropriate prescribing of antibiotics. Yeah. Um, a high volume of opioid based medicines being prescribed. Um, yeah. And, but I think I think mainly it comes down to patients registered GPs not being notified right. when they were being prescribed uh, antibiotics. So, in, so then it sounds like there's going to be a gap in their medical history. Right. Um, other issues included approaches used for safeguarding children and uh, and those who may not have the mental capacity to understand a consent to a consultation. And then there is sort of a, 
not collecting and sharing patient information with GPs. Uh, again, again, same thing. Um, that report does uh, say that 97% of providers uh, are meeting regulations around being caring. And 90% are meeting regulations for being responsive to people's needs. So it's not all bad. Um, and CQC usually provides pretty good um, notes on how uh, services should should improve. Yeah. So that's all from the digital health angle. Um, Fliss, you were going to give us an update on Martin Shkreli. Indeed. So we spoke about Martin Shkreli uh, last year in one of the, was it the first or one of the first podcasts that we did mm-hmm. um, uh, where we had a rather humorous conversation about the selection of his jurors, um, which was difficult. <laughs> <laughs> To yeah. put it mildly. Not many fans. <laughs> so he um, was recently sentenced. The sentencing has happened and he has been um, given seven years in prison, which I was slightly shocked at. I felt that that was quite a long... I know it mm-hmm. wasn't as long as, as the prosecutors had hoped. Yeah. They mm-hmm. were hoping for 15 years. His... Um, Lawyers were asking for 18 months, which I think was a bit ridiculous as well. (laughs) I think the big thing to take from this, though, um, is that, you know, obviously, I mean, he came to notoriety for his price gouging of an AIDS drug, for Mm -hmm. HIV drug. Um, But it wasn't that that he was convicted of. It was, in fact, defrauding investors. So defrauding rich people... You know, so um, there's been a lot of conversations about, well, why is, you know, this price gouging legal? Because mm-hmm. it is. People yeah. can do it. it. tends to be these sort of older drugs that don't have any competition. Yeah. So that's going to be an interesting thing to come out of it, whether or not they take that any further. Obviously, the FDA are looking at um, bringing more generics into the market. That The Commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, has been doing a lot on that. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to, I suppose, avoid this sort of price gouging. But, yeah. I mean, it still happens. It, less so over here, I feel, because obviously we have a cost-benefit ratio mm-hmm. that yeah. is looked at yeah. in order for drugs to be used on the NHS. So if they're too expensive, they won't get used. It's as simple as that. The US doesn't have that. Whereas the US is private. Institutionalised yeah. uh, health service. So, I mean, that's an interesting thing. But seven years, I mean, what what are your thoughts on the... I mean, I mean, seven years is how, how much of that is he going to do in in prison? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head, Fliss. Um, but the distinction between what he's actually been sentenced for and what the wider public um, kind of feel about him is two, you know, is, is two different um, things. Um, obviously, we're all kind of where everybody who read the story was enraged about the price gouging because, as you said, it was a drug that. Had no audit, there was no generic available mm-hmm. for it, and it was it was increased by five thousand percent. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think um, <laughs> just ridiculous. Just beyond. So I think everybody kind of sees it, even though we know that it's a punishment for defrauding investors. Mm. We kind of see it as a punishment for the price gouging. Mm. I think it's impossible to avoid avoid that. Um, and to, just going back to the point about price gouging, though, what do you think? Um, the FDA and other um, regulatory bodies can do to kind of crack down on price gouging? Is it, is it, is, can they make it easier? Can they change the rules around 
generics, do you think? And, you know, at what point you can start a patent end so you can start creating generics? Well, this is, yeah, this is it. And the FDA have already been looking into that because there are loopholes mm-hmm. um, in the laws that means um, when a paint, patent is coming to expiration, a company can refuse to give a sample of the drug to a generic manufacturer um, for various reasons. Uh, I can't, off the top of my head, think of this precise reasoning, but there is there is something there's a loophole there which means that they can avoid really giving and then that the sample goes over. On for years, right. So the generics the generic manufacturers never have that, you know, the composition to look at in order mm-hmm. to create um, something that would be considered equivalent mm. in a clinical trial. So that's being looked at to try and stop that. Because that's obviously giving these branded drugs an unfair advantage in yeah. a way. And like you said, can go on for a long period of time. And the FDA are putting are trying to push through more generics, but then you have people arguing the case that, well, if they're pushing these drugs through too quickly, are they as effective mm-hmm. as they should be or safe as they should be? Yeah. Or are they just pushing them through for the sake of pushing through more at, generics? At the minute, the FDA seems all about speeding up that regulatory but process. It's Trump. Trump's... Yeah, and Trump's... Um, uh, been a big advocate of that. A war on drug prices that he started when he came into mm-hmm. into office. But even in the med tech side and the digital health side, we're looking in, in ways to speed yeah. up market access for mm. you know digital solutions or, or medical devices. Um, and it has to beg the question of, is it obviously going to be safe with the yeah. decreased time of getting to market? And it's very interesting from that angle to think about. So the FDA are going that way, America's going that way. Mm-hmm. With Brexit and the um, separation of us from the EMA, how are both those, uh, you know, well, we will be regions, well, us as a country and the Europe as a region going to cope with that? Because they're saying if we don't maintain um, our position within the EMA, mm-hmm. which is hopeful at the moment, I mean, with recent discussions... There's a lot of talk about... Theresa May wants to try and keep within the EMA. Yeah. Uh, keep the UK within that um, uh, agency. But if we don't, will we come up with our own regulations that are actually more strict? Because obviously we'll have to be able to get into Europe. So mm-hmm. we can't go the other way where mm-hmm. they're, they're slackened off a bit because otherwise we won't be able to distribute in Europe. So will it go more strict? I don't know. Mm-hmm. And will that then cause issues on the front of expensive drugs having to be used on the NHS because there aren't any other options available. No. All good content for future podcasts. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, we can't answer it right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting things to think about anyway. And absolutely. Brexit, obviously, is one to watch at the moment. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Great. Okay, I'm going to round us off. I um, have been looking at an infographic which we were sent from... RS components, they basically they make batteries and connectors and power supplies and things for um, all different industries, automotive and medical. Um, but they uh, kind of, kind of, the kind of marketing a lot of kind of forward thinking companies are doing now revolves around things like infographics and interactive stuff that you can send out to people. Mm-hmm. Um, they sent us this infographic about the bionic body. Um, or was it the bionic body of the future? Yeah, what does the bionic body of the future look like? That was it. So um, it was really um, good fun uh, thing, but it had some fascinating stuff on it. I'm going to whiz through a few of them, and then there's a couple I want to touch on in detail. Um, so 
in the future, according to RS components, in the future we'll have exact replicas of the brain that we can create, um, bionic eyes, a battery-powered heart, bionic lungs, artificial kidneys, 3D-printed arteries and small organs, artificial pancreas, lab-printed bones, extra senses, um, they call it the eye limb, um, which is a prosthetic device with motorised joints, and a thought-controlled robotic leg. Well, that's interesting. It's interesting, because some of these are actually available now. Yeah, I was going to say, there's like um, a lot of things that are available in the eye already, aren't there? Absolutely, you know? yeah. yeah. The, um, artificial um, pancreas as well. Lou actually did oh, a piece well. on the bionic lens technology, I think it was earlier this year, um, and she looked at a company called Ocumetics Technology, um, so they've been developing a replacement for the lens um, in the human eye. Um, they're currently looking to undergo clinical trials with this lens, um, and it could be used to improve eyesight near and far, and also potentially eliminate cataracts. So um, that's something that's being worked on. Flesh, you know, a lot more than we do about <laughs> eye health. What do you think? Uh, yeah, it sounds really interesting. I mean, obviously... If you get a cataract, you have your lens replaced anyway. Yeah. Um, and the technology to do that is, is pretty advanced now, mm-hmm. coming from <laughs> when it started, <laughs> when it was like glass or something horrific. Um, so it's interesting to see this. I, I can see there's something about controlling macular degeneration. So, I mean, that's very interesting how it would be able to do that from the front of the eye because the macular degeneration is at the back, unless it's about filtering the lighting because macular degeneration is... Um, tended to be um, thought of as, as its degradation at the back of the eye due to certain wavelengths of light, so specifically, you know, uh, a specific wavelength that really damages. So in the sunlight, you know, that kind of UV rays and things that are going to really damage it. There has been talk about nutrition that can help. Right. Blue eye, people with blue eyes tend to have worst cases of it because we let more light in okay so yeah I think we all have blue eyes sat around the table so I, I, I have green uh, so you know it's it's one of those things they looked into a lot of that sort of stuff but that's interesting I think that will probably to do with the um, what lights wavelengths are let into your eye maybe and that's how that would help that but obviously with the cataracts I mean yeah you replace your lens you're going to avoid having Cataract. Yeah. What I like about sort of these future health in- infographics is how a lot of it touches on stuff that's available now. Yeah. yeah. Um, so if you think about e- even hearing aids, which are uh, mm. uh, sensors which are embedded into, into certain areas of the brain to help certain people he- hear better. I mean, there's, there's just some amazing stuff already out there. That's, that's very much what this is. It, it's called the, the body of the future or bionic body of the future. But actually, as you say, the foundations for all of these things that we just mentioned are already there. And the other one that I wanted to touch on um, is a prediction. Um, and in the infographic, it says, by 2050, Dr. Ian Pearson, a futurologist with an 85% accuracy record, predicts it will be possible to create exact replicas of the human brain by a machine. The futurist explains, essentially, you'll be making a backup of yourself. So if one day you get run down by a bus, it doesn't really matter. You've got a backup. Now, if you've seen, there's a program on Netflix at the moment that's called Altered Carbon. Okay. And that's about 
Exactly that. Essentially that, that having right, a backup okay. of yourself and it, you can get put into a different shell. It's an basically. inherent feature of science fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Ian and Banks thought about it in the nineties. Yeah. Well, it seems to be kind of leaving the realm of science fiction and actually 2050 might be a bit conservative because there's one company who were featured on the BBC a couple of weeks ago. Um, let me see if I can find the name of the business. Uh, Nectome. Um, it's a startup. They've managed to raise quite a lot of funding, nearly a million dollars in funding. Um, and what they are working on is a technology to do exactly that, to clone um, memories and thoughts and things from brains of um, patients who are terminally ill. Mm-hmm. But um, the big flaw with this is that um, the patient, it is it is terminal. So this is why they are focusing on terminally ill patients. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, in order to do it, they need to embalm the brain and it needs to be as fresh as possible. So essentially, the patient has to die in the process right. of having their brain preserved and then um, all of the memories transferred. So that's nice. It's quite creepy, isn't it's it? Really it's really creepy, isn't it? It's really creepy. But don't, doesn't it just ring, sort of like, bring back memories of the um, cryopreservation yes, exactly. and fad that yeah. there was? I mean, there are still stories now about um, patients who undergo cryopreservation. You can pay tens of thousands of pounds yeah. to go out to America and uh, kind of on your deathbed, you can arrange for a team of cryogenics experts to come and wrap you up just on your dying breath and they'll, they'll freeze you. It's really... Um, it's horrible. Yeah, it's... it's, it's a and Futurama weren't far off then with the heads in, <laughs> heads in jars. Heads in jars. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Star Wars with Han Solo and Carbonite. Yeah. You know, they beat us to it. <laughs> if you're gonna do it, you'd have to. You'd have to. You have to just go the, the whole hog and yeah. get everyone dressed up as Darth Vader and Princess Leia. <laughs> <laughs> Who would be Jabba the Hutt though? That's the question. Well, he's not. He's not in that scene anyway, isn't he? When he gets frozen in carbonite, I thought he was. Is he? I don't think he is. Oh no, it's, it's Darth Vader. It's Darth but he Vader gets there, brought yeah. to Jabba the Hutt. Yeah, Boba Fett's there. I, anyway, sorry. I've got nothing sorry to, to contribute to. The <laughs> we went on a tangent. Yeah. <laughs> um, did you read the rest of what Dr. Ian Pearson said about the exact replicas of the brain? I did not. Uh, well, it, it, it's certainly an amazing concept, um, but he, he stems our expect, expectations a little bit by saying, obviously, the, you've got to consider the impact on the planet if everyone's mm. preserving the, the, their brain and coming back as cyborgs or, or whatever. You've got to uh, think about that. Um, so maybe in the future there'll be sort of limits on how long you can live after you die. What, like a legal thing? Yeah, like yeah, legal, like, yeah so you come back for five years and do, do whatever you want. Yeah, because that's the thing with this altered carbon. I mean, you've got people who are living for hundreds of years mm-hmm. because they're just regenerating themselves, right. essentially. So, yeah, there's got to be, be, be a big impact on the, on the planet. Mm. So, um, yeah, you'd have to curb procreation in order to stop the population becoming too overwhelming, mm-hmm. wouldn't you? Or go to other ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, the one thing I should caveat with all of this is that there is actually no proof at all that this even works, because it's, it's never been done. Right. And there are a lot of cynics out there, there are a lot of sceptics, I should say, who... What, you mean um, I'm sitting here with all these sensors on my brain for no apparent reason? <laughs> Sorry, it may not work. Damn. Are you saying that we've just spoken about that for ten minutes and our yeah. listeners have just found out it's not actually real? It could be it real. It could be real. It could be real. Um, they basically 
the idea is that the company says one day it'll be possible to, su- to survey the brain's connectome, which is the neural connections within the brain, to such a detailed degree that they'll be able to reconstruct a person's memories. But there's absolutely no evidence that that is possible. It's just theoretical. Forward thinking. Yeah. Mm. Well, a, a lot like cryogenics again. Mm-hmm. Mm. Just a concept. Yeah, it's something that a lot of people have gone into, put their blind faith into, and, um, and, and supposedly Walt Disney, although I think that's been debunked, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure about that one. Yeah. Anyway, we digress. That's, I think, it from me. Right. Then that's it for the podcast. Right. Thanks for listening, guys. See you next time.